Father, may your word be our rule. May your spirit be our guide. And above everything, we pray that Jesus Christ would be our chief concern. Even so, we pray. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen. Galatians chapter 5, starting at verse 1. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. I want to stop there. (laughs) Oh no, it's going to take us forever to get through this passage. Yeah, it might. But it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. This statement is, is massive. I mean, it's one sentence long, but it's a massive statement because I believe it really is a summary of everything that we've talked about and read in the first four chapters of the book of Galatians, right? If you wanted to take everything that Paul had said in those first things and sum it up, you would say this, the gospel of Jesus sets us free. By fulfilling the law and imputing his righteousness to us, Jesus sets us free from having to fulfill the law, right? We are no longer under the law because Christ has fulfilled the law. Therefore, we are free. That's the point. That's what Paul is trying to drive into the minds of the Galatians and our minds as well. Now, what's fun is, is if you could read this statement, it is for freedom that Christ has set you free. If you could read it in the Greek, you would realize and see how, just like how emphatic Paul is being here with this idea. I mean, he's essentially bolding it and underlining it and italicizing it, right? It is for freedom that Christ has set it free. Now, if you look at that statement in English, it, it, I mean, it's a relatively short sentence. I bet we could all memorize it just by saying it one time. It is for freedom that Christ has set you free, right? That's it. But in the Greek, it's five words. For freedom, Christ freed you. That's it. For freedom, Christ freed you. Now what's amazing about that, the sentence structure there, for freedom, Christ freed you. The noun and the verb are both freedom. For freedom, Christ freed you. The means by which we are freed is through freedom. And the end of Christ's action on the cross is so that we might be set free. Freedom is both the means and the end. It's the noun and the verb. It's the whole point. For Christ, for freedom, Christ freed you. And what's also great about that sentence is it's, it's in the past tense. For freedom, Christ freed you. This has been accomplished. This is not something that we're waiting to happen in the future. It's not like we're biding our time right now and then one day we'll be free. No, no, no. The act has been completed on the cross. Christ has freed you. It's done. You can live in that freedom now. For freedom, Christ freed you. That's the point. And if that's all you take home today, wonderful. For freedom, Christ freed you. I'm going to probably say that about 20 more times this morning. And so just get used to For freedom, Christ free. I'm just going to slip it in there, right? Like it's on Easter in a few weeks we say, you know, he's risen. He's risen indeed, right? For freedom, he freed you. That's it. Now, let's keep reading. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Mark my words. I, Paul, tell you. 
that if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you at all. Again, I declare to every man who lets himself be circumcised that he is obligated to obey the whole law. You who are trying to be justified by the law have been alienated from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit we eagerly await by faith the righteousness for which we hope. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself as love. For freedom, Christ has freed you. And then Paul encourages his readers by saying, but you got to stand firm. It's for freedom that Christ has freed you, but you got to stand firm lest you slip into slavery again. Now, this idea of standing firm is actually a military idea, all right? So it has this idea of you must be alert. You must be on the ready. You must be, be willing to resist. You must guard against. You must be vigilant lest you find yourself slipping back into slavery because freedom is tenuous. Freedom isn't a natural state. Freedom is something that people will try to pull you out of, and so you've got to be willing to resist. You've got to be willing to stand tall. You've got to be firm. For freedom, Christ freed you. This is our hope. This is the gospel. This is what we cling to. For freedom, Christ freed us. So stand firm lest you fall into slavery again. Now remember, when Paul is writing this letter, he's writing to the Galatian church, which is largely made up of Gentile Christians. And Gentile Christians were enslaved in the past. They were not free, but they were enslaved, but they were enslaved under pagan worship, right? So they're worshiping false gods and false idols. But Paul isn't necessarily concerned with them being enslaved once again by pagan worship, and idolatry, but rather that they would be enslaved by a kind of moral legalism under the law. Now, the way that Tim Keller describes what's going on here, it it, kind of tickles me because it pokes at two people groups that are often at odds with one another, but are just opposite sides of the same coin. And so Keller, he says this, he says, uh, where am I? You are all my all in all. Blessed be your name. I'm going to put that on the first slide for me. There we go. This is what Tim Keller says. He says, Galatians had been amoral liberals, and now they're about to become very moral conservatives. Right? Two people that often are warring at each other, but are just opposite sides of the same, of the same coin. Right? This is what Paul's argument is, that neither of these offer true freedom. Amoral liberalism, or better, a better way to say that, lest we start getting to thinking into political terms here, amoral licentiousness, this freedom to think that you can do whatever it is that you want to do, sounds like freedom, but isn't really free. Because in the end, you're simply your own God enslaved to your own desires. You decide what's right. You decide what's wrong. You decide what you get to do. You resist anybody else telling you, but you're just caught underneath your own way of thinking, your own worldview, and you are your own God. Which, again, sounds great, but the moment you slip into that role, all of a sudden you become tasked with a whole bunch of things that now become your responsibility that, frankly, you don't have the ability to be responsible for. 
Yes, you get to maybe decide what's right and wrong, but then you also have to answer the major questions in life. Like, what gives your life purpose and what gives your life meaning? Where does that meaning come from? Like, the big existential questions now have to be answered by you. But it's not just that. It's also the problem of evil and suffering. What do you do with that? How are you going to solve it? Because if you are God, and if you are the one who's deciding right and wrong, then you've got to fix what's wrong with the world. And how are you going to do that? And maybe that just seems like too big of a task. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to completely ignore the pain and the suffering in the world, and I'm only going to be focusing on my desires and my wants and making sure that that's all getting met. And that may not seem like, well, it seems like you're brushing aside the pain and the suffering of others, and it is. And that's how you're choosing to solve it. I'm choosing to solve the question or the problem of evil by just ignoring it. And you become enslaved to your own selfishness. You become enslaved to this unloving way of being in the world. And Paul says, for freedom Christ freed you. You're free from that. And you're also free from the very moral conservatism, the legalism. That is empty religion. That, that, that adherence to the, to, to the rules, to the law, because you feel like you have an obligation. The rules, thinking that the rules and the laws are going to somehow give you right standing with God. You're free from that moral legalism that's based in fear. Fear that if I don't live a certain way, that God is going to punish me, that he's going to be angry with me, that he's going to cast me from his presence. Right? Paul says, for freedom you've been set free. You're free from that. Not only are you free from licentiousness and legalism, if you return to the law, you not only return to slavery, but you alienate yourself from Christ. Some versions don't use the word alienate. They say you sever yourself from Christ and you fall away from grace. Now this this language, the alien, you alienate yourself, from, you sever yourself from Christ. I mean, that's extreme language, and it sounds super harsh, but it's actually, I mean, Paul is, is making a profound statement about the very nature of God that we are separating ourselves from. So remember, our salvation is not something that is earned, or our salvation does not come because we have justified ourselves based on our good works, but rather, salvation comes because of God's unmerited favor towards us, his grace, his goodness, his mercy. God chose to save us because of God's great love for us, and God's love for us is based on God's character, right? God is love. It's essential to who God is. God is the good father. God is slow to anger and abounding in love. God is full of that hesed, that loving kindness that we cannot run away from because we cannot go to the highest height or to the deepest deep. There's nothing that can separate us from the love of God. This is who God is. This is, essential, this is essential to the character of him. And so this gift of grace is not a one-time act that's somehow disconnected from the character of God, but the gift of grace, the sending of Jesus into the world and his life, death, and resurrection is intimately tied to the character of God. And to suddenly put yourself back under the law is to abandon that. It's to abandon grace and pick back up obligation and duty and having to prove ourselves and trying to earn God's favor. 
and we alienate ourselves from the very character of God. We miss out on who He is. And we begin to distort God, and this is where we get to maybe the images of God as a, a judge, or God as a rule keeper, or God as a Zeus-type figure who's just waiting to smite us lest we screw up, a tiger who's going to pounce the moment we do the wrong thing. We alienate ourselves from the character of God, from the God who is love, whose grace abounds, whose kindness leads us to repentance, the God who promises to not only save us, but to restore all things and make all things new. And so Paul says, listen, when you understand that this is who God is, it doesn't matter, circumcision or uncircumcision, neither of these things have any value. And when he's talking about circumcision and uncircumcision, he's saying, listen, neither religion, as indicated by circumcision, or, or lack of religion, as uncircumcision, neither of these things really reflect the character and the nature of God. They miss out on the fact that it isn't what we do, or it isn't about what we don't do. It's simply about God's grace. And so what matters, what matters is not circumcision, what matters is not uncircumcision, what matters is not religion, what matters is not un, uh, 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 unreligion, what matters is faith expressing itself as love. So look at what Paul says next. He says, you were running a good race. Who cut in on you to keep you from obeying the truth? That kind of persuasion does not come from the one who calls you. A little yeast works through the whole batch of dough. I'm confident in the Lord that you will take no other view. The one who is throwing you into confusion, whoever that may be, will have to pay the penalty. Brothers and sisters, if I am still preaching circumcision, why am I being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been abolished. As for the agitators, I wish they would go the whole way and emasculate themselves. Sometimes I wish Paul were a little bit more clear about where he stands and what he feels. Like, that's just... You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free. But do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Now, this whole idea of loving one another or loving your neighbor as yourself, it, it kind of comes out of left field, particularly because, because of some of the language that Paul uses, right? But, but it doesn't really come out of left field. And here's why it doesn't come out of left field. Both legalism and licentiousness, that, 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 that I'm going to do whatever I want, both legalism and licentiousness are rooted in insecurity and selfishness. Both are selfish because they place the self at the center. It's either, like, it's me and my obedience. That's what makes me moral. That's what makes me righteous. That's what makes me a good person. It's me, right? It's selfish. I'm at the center. I'm good enough. I'm smart enough. I've made the right choices. I've lived my life a certain way. Me. Licentiousness is also self-centered, but for a different reason. This instead is not like I'm a good person, but I get to do whatever I want. I get to chart my own future. I get to be the master of my destiny. I get to decide what's right and wrong. Both of these are self-centered. Both are insecure because, truly know where they, because neither truly know where they stand 
with the divine or with the future. Right? The, the, the moral legalist is always wondering, have I done enough? Is there some sin that I don't know about? Have I broken some law unintentionally? Am I going to find out that I, I, was, I was pretty good, but I was just a little short, right? Have, you ever, have any of you seen the TV show The Good Place? It's a fantastic show, uh, and, and it has all these wonderful questions about the afterlife, and they're being done in all these really way, weird ways. But the whole premise of the show is you've got to do enough to get to the good place, right? And there's some formula that's been decided somewhere along the lines that determines every act that you do and counts up a score, and you get a score. When you show up in the waiting room to decide if you go to the good place or the bad place, you get your score, right? Like, that's the problem that the moral legalist is. They don't know what their score is, and they're constantly wondering what, they've, how, what their score is and what the threshold is. And so there's this inherent insecurity within legalism. But the same thing exists within licentiousness, this I'm just going to do whatever I want, because because, well, what if there is actually an account that we have to give? What if, what is, like, what if you don't get to choose everything? And you're left wondering that. And then the reality is, is because both licentiousness and legalism are inherently selfish and insecure, they make it unable for us to love others when we slip into one or the other. It becomes very, very difficult to love others when you're concerned solely about yourself, right? Because love requires us to be focused on others. Love requires us to put others' needs before our own. Love requires us to put our desires aside so that we can serve the person right in front of us. Love requires a certain security of relationship and trust so that I can enter into relationship, that I can put your needs before mine, that I can set aside my worries and anxieties so that I can be concerned with yours. Love requires a certain level of security to know that in God's eyes I have standing and therefore because of that I can truly mourn with you and I can truly celebrate you. But if I'm insecure and I'm selfish and you start getting some praise, you start getting some success, I can't celebrate with you because I'm a little bit jealous. Like, why are you getting that and not me? Look at how wonderful I am. Look at all the good things that I've done. Right? I can't show you honor when I'm trying to be the one who's getting the honor. I can't serve you when I'd much rather satisfy my own desires. And so this argument that seems to come out of left field, like love your neighbor as yourself, isn't really out of left field at all, but it's intimately connected to the result that stems from the practice of licentiousness or legalism. Now, Paul's overall structure in this passage, these 15 verses, I think we can boil it down to two things. First, for freedom, Christ has freed you, right? Our standing with God has been won by Christ, and we can be assured that we have been reconciled to God and our sons and daughters. We are free, no longer under the law. This is everything that we've been talking about for the last couple of months. That's the first point in Paul's argument. And then the second point is that we have been set free to love others. So we can look at it in two ways. One, we have been set free from the law. We have been set free from sin. We have been set free from the consequence of sin. Or we can set free from death, right? The consequence of sin. And we've been set free to love. This is Paul's argument. Now, this 
peace, the set free to love. And the way that Paul makes that point, that the whole law is fulfilled in this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. It's, it's interesting how Paul is saying this and what he's saying here. Because on the one hand, we've heard that Jesus is the one who fulfills the law. Right? This is what we've talked about. Jesus fulfilled the law. We don't have to. But here Paul is saying the whole law is fulfilled. Love, one of, love your neighbor as yourself. Well, didn't Jesus fulfill the law? So why is Paul exhorting us to fulfill the law? Yes, Jesus fulfilled the law. But how did Jesus fulfill the law? Jesus fulfilled the law through love. For God so loved the world. Jesus loved us so much that he gave up his throne in heaven, took on the form of a servant, and was obedient to the Father until death on the cross. Christ loved us. And his love fulfilled the law so that we might be set free. We then, when we love our neighbor as ourself, are actually living in the fulfillment that Christ has brought. Love is the fulfillment of the law. The law was fulfilled through Christ and his loving acts on, in the world. And we have been freed from sin, from slavery, so that we might live in the freedom that is the fulfillment of the law. This is why John writes in the first letter bearing his name. We love because Christ first loved us. There's a direct connection between our understanding of the gospel and living as people who love our neighbor as ourselves. Now, this isn't to say that we need to love our neighbor as ourselves in order to understand the gospel. If we were to say that, then I think we'd be slipping back in underneath the law. That the law now is if you want to be under the gospel, that you have to love your neighbor. No, 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 no. But it is to say that once we understand and grasp the gospel, that the gospel does not leave our concern and our love for our neighbor unaffected. Rather, it transforms it, it amplifies it, it renews it, it brings it under the model of Christ. And so we love like Jesus loved. Every night with my, son, my children, when I tuck them to bed, if, whichever one I'm doing that evening, and we say a prayer, I end the prayer with, and help us to remember how much Jesus loves us. And help us to love others just like Jesus loves us. And that's what Paul is driving at here. We participate in Christ's fulfillment of the law when we love others in the way that Jesus loves us. Now, here's the other interesting thing about what Paul says in verse 14. He says, the law is fulfilled when we by this one command, when we love our neighbor as ourselves. Now, most of us know that phrase, right? We love your neighbor as yourself. But what's interesting is when Jesus was asked, which is the greatest commandment? He responds with, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. What's fascinating is that Paul does not include that first part. He doesn't say the law is fulfilled by this one command. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and your strength, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. 
He simply says, by this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. Now, does this mean that Paul thinks that the love of God is unimportant? No, of course not. Does he think that it's somehow secondary to the love of our neighbor? No. What I think Paul is getting at, or what his intent is here, is that for him, the idea of loving God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength is interconnected to the love of our neighbor, such that when we talk about one, we're automatically talking about the other, and we can't pull these two things apart as if they're unrelated. You can't have one without the other. Augustine, uh, the church father, he said it like this, A person who loves his neighbor properly should, in concert with him, aim to love God with all his heart, all his soul, and all his mind. In this way, loving him as he would would himself, he relates his love of himself and his neighbor entirely to the love of God, which allows not the slightest trickle to flow away from it and thereby diminish it. What Augustine is saying is this, your love of neighbor will be defined by God's love for you, which will help you see who you are, right? So God's love for you shows that you're worthy, that you have dignity, that you have value, that you bear the image, that you're worth sacrificing for. And when you understand that, then you're able to take that love that God has shown you and extend it to others. So the more that you grow in your understanding of God's love for you, the greater you'll be able to love those around you. This is what we have been set free to. For freedom, Christ freed us. We are no longer have to worry about our standing with God. Once we understand God's love for us, then we very clearly see that God loves us as sons and daughters. And because of that, then we're able to more properly love those around us. We can serve with gladness. We can forgive as we can be forgiven. And yes, we can even love our enemies because this is the love that we have seen from God. The more that I follow Jesus, the more that I study scriptures, the more times I meditate on it and write sermons and and do this, the more I've come to believe that the body of Christ is to be a people who are marked by love. And that you will directly be able to tell our love for, for God by our love for our neighbor. I absolutely believe that. I don't believe that the love that we talk about and the love of God is some philosophical idea. I believe that it's been incarnated. It's got flesh and it's got bones. It's the love that touches the untouchable, that feeds the hungry, that, that sits with the lonely, that listens to the misunderstood, that welcomes the outcast. That makes space for the prodigal. That goes and looks for the lost. And that kind of love has flesh and bones on it. And when we understand that that's how God loves, then we'll be a people who are marked by that. And people will be able to see it in our interactions with one another. They'll see it as we interact with our spouses and significant others. They'll see it when we interact with our children. They'll see it when we interact with our friends. 
Well, they'll see it when we interact with the people that we call the church here. I mean, the reality is, is this love of neighbor starts here. It really does. Yes, you should, like, I'll get to this in a minute. You should absolutely love the neighbor who you live right next door to. But it starts here. Think of the church like this. The church is the place, and I use this word often because it's just, it's, it's the traditional word, right? But this is the place where we practice. We practice our faith. We practice loving one another. And, and, and in this place, we're going get, to get it wrong. Right? This is why sometimes church is hurtful. This is why sometimes people get frustrated in church because we have these high ideals, as we should, about how the people of God should act and how they should treat one another. But we also have to acknowledge that we're all practicing our faith and we're all practicing how to really love one another and set aside our own desires so that we can more accurately love the person who's right in front of us. But this is the place where we practice. Part of the way that we practice is by learning how to forgive those who have hurt us. And when we learn how to forgive those who have hurt us, guess what we can do out there? We can love our enemies. Right? And so we practice here. We practice mourning with those who mourn, and we practice rejoicing with those who rejoice. We practice setting aside competition. We practice setting aside our desires, and we practice being present to the person who's right in front of us. We practice listening for what's really going on below the surface. We practice connecting with people and say like, oh, this person over here can meet this need and this person can meet this need. We practice hospitality and inviting people into our homes. We, we practice here. And what we learn here helps us out there and so we can love the neighbor right next door to us who's difficult. We know how to do that because, <laughs> because I've learned how to love some difficult people in church. Not you, not you, Right. But we learn that. We learn how to love our coworkers, the ones who grade against us because we've learned how to love here. We, love how to, we learn how to love the person who's hurting because we've learned how to do that here. Yeah. This is the fulfillment of the law. It's already been fulfilled. But this is what it looks like to live in freedom. This is what true freedom is. True freedom is being able to love as Christ loved. So my hope and my prayer for us as individuals and for us as a congregation is that we would be a people who are marked by love. Let's pray. We give you thanks, Father, that you loved us so much that you sent your son into the world to die for us so that whoever believes in him would not die but have eternal life. We give thanks for that. We give thanks for that extravagant show of love. We pray that it would seep deep down into our bones, that it would root us that it would define us and that we would experience the freedom that Christ has set us free for. I pray that you would grow our heart's capacity to love those around us. May that love be informed and shaped by the love that Jesus has shown us. May we continue 
to plumb the depths of the gospel and of your love for us so that we can love others just as Christ has loved us. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit.